today's Thursday, November 15, 2007. I'd like to welcome you to our neurobiology podcast series. Our distinguished guest today is William Ross of the New York Medical College in Valhalla. Um, on our panel today, we have Charles Wilson, as usual. Hey, that's me. And Carlos Palladini, as usual. Uh, hello, how are you doing? Fidel, yet Hi, again. Selma. how are you? And um, myself, my, I'm Salma Karashi. For more content on our guests, and each of our panelists, please visit our website at snrp.utsa.edu. So welcome, everybody, um, especially you, Bill. So uh, not to make you seem like an old-timer, but you're halfway into your fourth decade now of visualizing activity-dependent changes in neurons from... Four decades. From your well, he's halfway into his half decade. From your from your vantage point as a pioneer in the field and a physicist by training, what were the big research questions you began with, and how have they changed? Wow, that's a that's a nice challenge. Uh, well, you know, I came into neuroscience and neurophysiology when there was still a large uh, concentration on people working on squid axons and channels that might explain action potentials in, in single uh, axons. And it somehow seemed to me, even then, as an outsider, that knowing something about what neurons looked like, and of course people knew something about the shape of neurons even back then, that if you had a view of the cell as sort of a single point or a single axon, that you must be missing something. And so I was very attracted by the possibility that there might be a technique that would let you look at uh, more than one location at the same time in a cell, or possibly, even though it wasn't my interest at that time, uh, more than one cell at the same time. And even then I had that perspective. And it attracted me that imaging was the most straightforward way of getting multi-site recordings of one kind or another about what happened in either networks or individual cells. And when I first came into it, not knowing very much about it, there was no calcium imaging at that time. There were, in fact, very few fluorescent dyes of any time. And the only people who were beginning to do imaging were people from Larry Cohen's lab who had just discovered that there were voltage-sensitive dyes. And so I got attracted to that. I met him in Woods Hole, and I asked if I could join his lab. And then that first step, you know, led to many other steps, which I could go on in more detail. But it was, I had that perspective that it would be useful for neuroscience to look at more complex things than you could with uh, a single site technique. So voltage sensitive dyes are still in some sense the holy grail because we would like to be able to use them the way we use calcium imaging to look at voltage in all parts of the cell at once. But they've never really quite given us that because we can't seem to get the voltage sensitive dye into just one neuron at a time. So what was your experience with voltage-sensitive dyes? You started out with looking at neurons that were more dispersed or something like that to get around the problem? Well, you know, I mean, everybody has their own individual stories, and then there's sort of the big story, and then there's this story that's under the table. And I like this, I think. For me, 
The story <laughs> under the table was that I really didn't have a lot of patience and I wasn't really that good with my hands. And coming from physics, where I never had to really deal with tissue, sort of dealing with tissue was sort of the uh, sort of pons asinorum for me, the sort of bridge that was difficult to cross, but which I had to learn to do before I could become a neuroscientist. So I wanted to learn to do it in uh, sort of an easier way. And voltage-sensitive dyes were really difficult. But I used them, but around the time when I was still in Larry Cohen's lab, uh, the first calcium indicators uh, came on the, into the marketplace, and this is before Fiora, before Roger Chen. Uh, but we had the opportunity at that time to test some calcium dyes. And so I was attracted, like many people would be as a postdoc, here was a chance for me to do something that was a little bit different than what my mentor was doing, uh, but still within the same general philosophy of doing imaging and multi-site things. And also, it seemed to me it would be easier to do because there were so many problems with voltage-sensitive dyes, very small signals, photodynamic damage, untested toxicity, and as you alluded to, which this was a problem that didn't even occur until some decades later, that if you tried to put it inside a single cell so you could record from a single cell at one time and have it spread out within the dendrites, that these dyes took such a long time to diffuse in the cell, mostly because they were lipophilic and didn't just diffuse in the cytoplasm like calcium uh, sensors. So all these things really made it hard to do, and I didn't like to do hard experiments. It wasn't until I had students who I could ask to do the hard experiments that we began to do harder experiments. So I guess that's sort of a related question. Um, how, how much do you feel that the research questions have driven the development of the technical strategies as opposed to the other way around? Like, for example, before the calcium indicators came around, were people talking about looking at calcium? And how did that shape the field, or was it the other way around? Well, I think it's anybody who's had any experience knows it's always both. Questions drive the techniques. Techniques drive the questions. Uh, but in, in, you can certainly point to many examples of both. In the imaging field or which even by giving it that name implies that it's a technique-driven thing rather than a question-driven thing. People have sort of known, sometimes specifically and somewhat less specifically, the idea that you alluded to, Charlie, that if you could, when you talked about the Holy Grail, that somehow if you could record from many things at the same time, that this would tell you something new. Okay, so this was an example of where a technique was clearly going to tell you something new. It's not always the case, but it was clear that if you could do something that would let you record from many different places in a cell or many different cells, that you were bound to learn something new. And it's always been my opinion that a large part of biology is observation. Even when we think 
when we have to apply to the NIH, you always have to give, you know, uh, uh, significance and the question that you're answering. The truth is, a lot of what you're going to find out is just observation. So that if you can just look carefully with a practice eye, you're going to learn something. And imaging was certainly a very good example of that uh, idea. Wasn't it wonderful, though, that it was calcium? Because if it had been something else, it would not have been as great. Because calcium is so... Great, great, powerful, and important in so many different ways, and has these fantastic dynamics, and all of that stuff wasn't known at that time, was it? I, I guess uh, people already knew that calcium was going to be very important. Well, the, the, some things were known by the time all the work that I ever got involved in, even as a postdoc, there had already been some experiments done with a quarren. This is a photoprotein that uh, gives off light when calcium binds to it. Uh, people had used it in uh, muscles. And I think it was cats and milady, but I'm not absolutely certain that they had used it in the squid giant synapse and found a luminescence that was uh, brighter at the terminal than in the axon. And so they knew that this might be related to uh, synaptic uh, transmission. So there were the hints already then that there was localized calcium entry. And it was known already then from cats and milady that calcium entry into the cytoplasm was important for synaptic transmission. So there were all, there were all these hints that uh, it might be... Uh, uh, if you could detect the calcium, you'd be detecting signals. And then, in fact, there was also this early work with a quarren that had first shown that you could see a calcium signal in the squid axon. In the axon itself, not the terminal region, just the sort of main transmitting part of the uh, axon. And it, some of the calcium came through calcium channels, some of the calcium came through sodium channels. And what this, if you thought about it in terms of not what you can learn about the squid axon so much, but what this might potentially tell you in terms of understanding com more complex circuits is that in any neuron, when there was a voltage change, there might be a calcium change coming through voltage-sensitive channels in the cell, and that this could be a sort of a a different way of doing what voltage-sensitive dyes were doing. After all, a certain amount of what voltage-sensitive dyes were supposed to do was to give you an accurate representation of the voltage change in the cell. But another part of what voltage-sensitive dyes were supposed to do when you looked at circuits was that any time there was a flash of light and it didn't have to actually be a perfect uh, representation of the action potential, but whenever there was an optical flash, it would tell you that there was an action potential. And in a similar way, uh, calcium change, even though it's, we all know now that the time course of a calcium change from an action potential doesn't in any way resemble the time course of the voltage change of an action potential, but it could, if you detected this single flash from calcium, 
it would tell you that an action potential occurred. And we sort of were aware of that possibility almost right from the beginning, okay, that it could be potentially an indicator for electrical activity as well as telling you something about signaling in cells where calcium was the important signaling molecule. So right from the beginning, we knew both of these pathways could be explored. Of course, it took a long time before many of the fruits of these ideas developed, uh, but we knew even then that calcium could be used in many different ways uh, if you could image it. I mean, the imaging of calcium could tell you many interesting things. But I think it's even before just um, neurons. I think the first uh, experiment in which people saw calcium waves was in uh, fish, um, eggs, after being um, after the sperm had fused. And, uh, and I think it was with a pouring that they saw the waves propagating and that, activating that's whatever. Exa- exactly right. In fact, when I was a postdoc at Harvard back in the 1970s, a man named Lionel Jaffe, who was at Purdue University at that time, came and gave a seminar in that department in which he showed uh, these uh, calcium waves in a fish egg medaca, I think it was, mm-hmm. where exactly as you said, fertilization at one end then led to this wave that spread in the cell. But I have to say for myself, it never really occurred to me that such a thing would exist in any other kind of cell. It seemed to me at that time that this was a kind of a specialized thing for eggs, and its purpose was in part to shut down the the surface of the egg so it couldn't be fertilized by another sperm. And it didn't occur to me that this might occur in other cell types. Uh, And even now, I'm not entirely sure that what happens in the egg is uh, exactly the same as what happens in other cells. But then later it was discovered that uh, calcium waves uh, could occur in a number of cell types. Uh, Some kidney cells, I think, were one of the earlier exploited cell types for this kind of uh, measurement. And then, of course, Berridge illuminated the whole field when he, you know, discovered... I don't know if he was the absolute first discoverer, but he certainly uh, sort of defined the field by really doing lots and lots of good experiments and showing how IP3-mediated mechanisms could cause the release of calcium from intracellular stores. But from my personal background, I didn't know anything about this at all. I never thought about the fact that you would have calcium release from intracellular things. I was... My background and perspective had led me to think of things from a neuronal point of view, which meant that electrical activity was key, so that you had either calcium entry into the cell as a function, as a sort of a indirect effect of opening voltage-sensitive channels, or as a carrying out a specific function, like synaptic transmission, or in cardiac cells to drive the action potential for that, 
and that there might be something that occurred in an intracellular compartment that had no electrical correlate was totally something I never thought about until we actually uh, found it ourselves in uh, pyramidal neurons. Uh, but I have to say, after I found it and I looked into the literature, I certainly uh, found that many other people in other preparations had found some similar things. But when we found it, it was something that I was totally unprepared for. So one of the interesting things about calcium as, um, as a signal in the cell is its slow dynamics compared to action potentials. So in a way, if we're interested in calcium signals as just a way of telling where when action potentials happen, they're imperfect because they last so much longer than calcium than action potentials do. But uh, the fact that they have this long time course means that calcium can sort of represent the history of neural activity for the, for other processes in the side of the cell. And many people have been excited about that, and there's been a sort of notion that calcium concentration encodes firing rate in the sense that it provides a, a variable that the cell can monitor if it wants that, to. That's help. exactly right. But this particular idea, which I think is true to some extent, has a little been a little bit... Uh, um, uh, clouded over by some technical issues that have sort of made this idea, I think, not been exactly right. And this relates to something that I was talking about earlier in the day, which is that when you put a calcium indicator into the cell, it's a buffer, and it slows down uh, the measured calcium transient compared to what the transient would be in a cell if there were no added calcium and so consequently, if, it, if any one individual transient is made to be artificially longer because of this buffering, you're going to get this buildup of signal from multiple action potentials that would never have occurred to that extent if there were not this added indicator. And the history of the field is one in which people in the beginning were trying to detect the calcium change, and so they were interested in either A, putting a lot of indicator in the cell so they can be sure of detecting a calcium change, or second, they would put an indicator in the cell that was particularly tuned to the calcium level in the cell so it would be sensitive. But this would mean that it would be a buffer because its uh, KD would be exactly at the range of calcium in the cell itself. And in a sense, these two, what were thought to be good qualities, to have an indicator with a KD close to resting calcium and to put a lot of indicator in the cell are absolutely the wrong things to do if you want to uh, actually follow accurately what calcium is doing in the cell. Although at that time, uh, the technical problems were even worse because bleaching of... of of the dye uh, was extremely fast, and it is until recently, even with confocal microscopy, uh, bleaching of these old, older dyes, um, uh, they, they occur in a couple of seconds. <clears throat> and it is in the last 10 years that we have the technology to actually monitor fast uh, with two-photon microscopy with reduced uh, amounts of bleaching and with uh, Oregon Green, BAPTA 1 and 6, uh, we can now do this this uh, 
high affinity, low affinity experiments, right? That's absolutely right. I mean, there's been progress both in the development of indicators. Uh, People, let me take a little parenthesis here. People often talk about the the properties of the indicators that you would read about in the sense their chemical properties, their their KD and their rate on rates and off rates and and their fluorescence intensity, but they often don't talk about the property that you just mentioned, and that is their resistance to bleaching and to causing photodynamic damage. Mm-hmm. But for anybody who's actually worked in this field, we know that these can be real practical problems leading to uh, cell death or before that, some distortion of the behavior of the cell. And so the improvement in indicators that are more now more resistant to bleaching and photodynamic damage has actually been very you know, big step forward in the field, but you don't read about it very much because it's not a, a catalog property that you can sort of list as something like that. So certainly the great improved selection of calcium indicators in terms of their known chemical properties, that is to say fluorescence intensity and KD and so on, and wavelength sensitivity, along with their resistance to bleaching, as well as, as you said, technical improvements in microscopy and detectors and light sources that have allowed us to make these measurements with uh, less light intensity uh, to begin with, and less indicator in the cell have led to much better experiments in more recent years. Since, since we're talking about developments, do you uh, see any impact of genetically encoded calcium sensors on your research? How do you feel about them in general and your utility? Well, if there's ever something that's really sexy in neuroscience is genetically encoded indicators. and um, But it's, a, it's an elusive goal. I would say that in terms of genetically encoded indicators for function, like calcium or chloride uh, or some other things that we could go into later, uh, these things are just getting to the point where they can be used. If you have a single cell that you could either detect the calcium from using a genetically encoded indicator that has been you know, uh, uh, made to uh, appear in a certain cell type, or if you had a, an equivalent cell in a non-genetically uh, modified preparation where you inject a calcium indicator into the cell, there's no question that you'll get much better signals from the small molecule calcium indicator than you will from the genetically encoded indicator. In addition, some of these genetically encoded indicators are nonlinear because they like, re- might require two calcium ions to bind, and so they'll have a kind of a sigmoidal uh, response. So these are defects of a certain kind. So you really don't see them being used very much in a practical manner. There are not very many papers that use them. There are a few papers that have found sort of special situations where uh, the, the properties that I mentioned, that is their weaker signal and nonlinearity, really don't matter that much. But in terms of recording from neurons, like most of us have done, 
with uh, ordinary calcium-indicated dyes, it's still something on the horizon. But having said that, I mean, I'm as attracted to something sexy as anybody else, and um, there's going to be great opportunities for these indicators and this approach to be uh, improved. And we all expect it's going to make a tremendous impact. Why? For several reasons. First, you can load them into many cells. Second, with the right promoters, you can put them into only certain subsets of cells. And third, with the right promoter, you can have them only appear at certain times in development. These are sort of very obvious statements, but there's no question that the ability to do that will have a big impact on interpreting uh, the experiments. But uh, I, I want to say something about, uh, like, um, I mean, we, start, we started talking about calcium, and it's, it's historically, right, that it was, it was good to look at calcium because it's so important, and it is kind of the, at the beginning of every, every biochemical, almost all biochemical reactions that we look at. But at the same time, there are all the other hundreds of molecules, right, that exist in, in the brain, in, in neurons, that are downstream or in parallel to calcium. And, and, and in terms of what you were talking about just uh, a few minutes before, that uh, uh, calcium is looked like as an integrator, and that's just inching away from our ideas that the that neurons are just cylinders, hollow cylinders. And uh, now that we discovered calcium, well, we, we believe that uh, it gets integrated, and that's it. It's just uh, an integrator of the electrical signal. But there's a lot of information about the, int uh, the intracellular structure of cells uh, that are telling us that it's a, li a lot more complicated, right? I mean, like your work has shown that a lot. And... I won't say that, and also I won't say that uh, there are, instead of looking at calcium, we can also look at uh, chloride. In the lab where I was with George Agustin, uh, they uh, created a um, FRET-based um, chloride indicator, and the advantages of FRET is that you can calibrate it to have an absolute reading of the chloride concentration. Um, they were able to encode it to create a, a transgenic animal on that. And of course, they, they are facing the problems that you're talking about. But I guess we also have to be, I guess, in the, for our listeners, uh, we have to start thinking about all the other molecules that are not calcium. Ab absolutely. Uh, so certainly chloride as a, an ion of interest, especially in uh, inhibitory circuits. Uh, be interested to know that since chloride goes through uh, GABA uh, receptors. Uh, and there is both small molecule chloride uh, 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 indicators and the genetically encoded indicator that you mentioned. Uh, there's some, there are some potassium indicators and of course, it'd be calcium. great to have a cyclic AMP indicator or IP3 indicator. Yes, yeah, so, uh, so and I was, if I can uh, step back, so as you know, we also have some interest in, in measuring sodium ion cells. So these, I would say, the sodium, calcium, potassium, chloride are in the class of uh, uh, molecules that the neurobiologist is sort of more familiar with dealing because. These have already been known to the electrophysiologists. And so the fact that we now have optical methods to detect these and deal with these is really 
a lot of progress. But as you said, uh, Charlie, uh, uh, the ability to detect a cyclic AMP would be great, and there is. So Roger Chen developed, at least five years ago, a uh, cyclic AMP technique that's pretty complicated because it involves, I think, putting two different parts of the of the the kinase into the cell, which then, when cyclic AMP binds to them, causes them to come together so that FRET-based fluorescence can give out a stronger signal. But even though he licensed it to some company and some other company has uh, picked up the ball after the first one fell down, it never ever took off as a commercial product. It just seems to be really too difficult. Now, the genetically encoded calcium indicators have also given some people uh, some insights as how to look for some other molecules. For example, the genetically encoded calcium indicators mostly have calmodulin as a piece of the uh, protein sequence in the indicator, uh, and that's the calcium-sensitive part because we know calcium binds to calmodulin. <clears throat> the man who developed this first one, which this first calcium genetically encoded indicator was called chameleon, it was actually developed in Roger Chen's lab by a man named Miyawaki, and he actually came to Roger Chen's laboratory from a man named Mikashiba's laboratory in Japan, and Mikashiba is a famous scientist whose specialty is IP3 and IP3 receptor. And Miyawaki's original intention was in Roger Chen's lab was to develop a FRET-based detector for IP3 using a piece of the IP3 receptor instead of calmodulin as the sensor. But that just turned out to be too difficult, so he gave up on it and developed chameleon in the calcium indicator. But he has now gone back to Japan and has actually made some progress in uh, making this. And if I can just say one other thing in this thing, in the last couple of years, we've seen some newer ideas. For example, uh, Carol Svoboda's laboratory, uh, mostly through the work of a postdoc of his named Yasuda, who is now at Duke, used a technique called fluorescence lifetime imaging measurements, or FLIM, to measure activation of RAS, which is a small molecule signaling protein in, in cells, to detect when it gets activated synaptically and how it spreads in the cell. So there are, now, there are these other molecules now, which we've now mentioned, calcium, IP3, uh, and RAS, among others, and cyclic AMP, which are downstream molecules in the signaling cascades that people are now beginning to uh, uh, approach with optical methods. So people are clearly aware that the downstream cascade is very important to explore. That's critical. The is, uh, is outrunning the execution, uh, I think, because still a lot hasn't been done with chloride 
but hasn't been done with sodium. And if you're working with sodium, um, and a couple of things that really strike me about this sodium work, it, besides the fact that there isn't too much of it, uh, one is uh, that this business of integration. Sodium is concentration changes after firing disappear even more slowly than calciums. And the sodium change isn't an artifact of the indicator. So the sodium really does, maybe it's a small concentration change part of the time, but sodium really is giving a signal to the cell that tells the cell uh, what the firing rate has been. And we haven't seen what that's used for in, in cells, but we just barely have found out that it's even really there. That's right. That's, I think, an example of where the technique of being able to measure sodium might lead to uh, experiments that would possibly answer some questions that sort of obvious once you uh, have the technique to measure it. For example, exactly as you said, is there actually a readout of uh, sodium concentration in the cell? One example that we were talking about earlier today is that there are sodium-activated potassium channels. Are these channels in some way a readout in the cell of sodium concentration? Well, now that we can measure sodium concentration in the cell, then I think we can start to ask questions that explore that possibility. Since we're talking about sodium, I think it's probably worth it to... um just look at the history of that a bit. So you were the first, I think you, you, were, you and David were the first to demonstrate that sodium transients could be visualized in vitro. And so in the 15 years since, only a handful of people have demonstrated successfully that it can be done and it hasn't really been used um, on a large scale. So what are the issues that have impeded its popularity? I think it might be worth talking about um, as, a, as a research tool in general. So. And what's changed, I guess, now that it's... Well, it's, it's hard to say for sure, because I can't put myself in the minds of other scientists. But as Torsten Wiesel, one of my advisors at a certain point in my scientific career, pointed out to me, he says, scientists are driven by fashion as much as anybody else, and measuring sodium has never really been in fashion. Uh, my own speculation, and it's purely speculation, is that this is for two reasons. And one is that it's, it is harder to do to make measurements of sodium concentrations in, in cells given the current level of indicators that are available. Of course, this is a bit, how uh, 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 say, catch-22, because if there were more interest in it, then maybe they would develop better indicators. So we'll have to see which comes first. But the second possible reason is that unlike calcium, which exactly as you said uh, earlier, uh, Fidel, that uh, uh, we know that calcium is an important signaling molecule, so people had a motivation for looking at calcium concentration changes in cells. Whereas I think most neuroscientists would have the prejudice that sodium concentration changes are just sort of a, an accidental consequence of the fact that cells fire action potentials and that there's not really much you can learn from looking at, from measuring them. 
again, this is a prejudice, and uh, again, I can't be sure that that's what other people think. Well, one big use for it is finding out where the sodium currents are on a cell, and what, that's what you've been using it for. And it's touched on what's one of the most fashionable, sexy questions in uh, neurophysiology right now, which is where action potentials start on neurons and under what circumstances might they move the place that they begin. So that, it seems like a, the kind of issue that would really bring the folks around, get them to... I'm thinking about the, the other side of the neuron, which is uh, some ionotropic receptors uh, allow sodium to flow in when uh-huh. they are activated. Um, so the, then sodium will be the actual signal of integration in, in the spine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And therefore, if you uh, and there, there's very little room for stuff to leave, right? And according to what you presented today, then it will seem to me that sodium will remain for a long period of time in the spine. And that will change the nearest um, potential. Um, and it will be more important in that little compartment. And it's certainly possible, but uh, uh, we don't really know exactly how long sodium will stay in the spine. And then, But there's a couple of potential reasons why it might not stay that long. One is, one of the differences between sodium and calcium is that sodium diffuses much faster in cells than calcium ions do. But obviously, neither ion is going to diffuse unless there's a gradient of that ion in the cell. But if you synaptically activate a cell and you have sodium ions entering through ionotropic receptors on spines, then you've immediately created a tremendous concentration gradient between the spine and the dendritic shaft. And so, assuming the neck head is not too uh, constricting, you can have uh, rapid removal of uh, sodium from the spine head that way. Secondly, a spine being such a small compartment is going to have a very large surface-to-volume ratio and so if there are any sodium pumps in the spine head, you might remove sodium uh, rapidly that way. These are still unknowns. It seems analogous to the uh, initial segment and entry of sodium into the initial segment and being almost like sucked out of the initial segment by the size of the soma itself. Would that not be the case? Yes, I think that's a appropriate analogy. Certainly on a different spatial scale, but it's the same thing. You have a a small compartment emptying into a big compartment, so you have a very large concentration gradient. Yeah, that happens for very fast transient things, but if synaptic activity were to stay for a little while, then it could reach steady state pretty quickly because of the rapid diffusion. Exactly. That I, I, I was wondering about that uh, for the case of neurons that are firing rapidly anyway. So for a cell that's, that's firing at, this baseline firing rate is 20 hertz, the, that's so much faster than the sodium uh, diffusion time for the, 
the sodium diffusion times you were talking about, things that is, the cell will reach a kind of steady state uh, over at least pieces of it will. Maybe the axon won't. The axon won't. But the rest of it is going to reach some kind of steady state that is really related to the firing rate and move up and down with that. If it could affect transporters, for example, and zillions of transporters that rely on sodium gradient as the source of their uh, energy, then those transporters are speeding up and slowing down uh, as the cell slows down and speeds up. That is yeah, first. So I, I, I thought about that in the case of, say, unmyelinated accents. I mean, I know you said that they weren't as important as myelinated accents, but... <laughs> but in a uh, certain context. A certain context. Well, I study a certain type of unmyelinated axon, so uh, <laughs> I, I seem to think they're a little bit important. But it, more so in that sense, when uh, sodium is kind of building up in an unmyelinated axon, then it will have this effect on the firing rate directly. And in, in the sense that it'll, it'll just good. fill up the, the entire, so it may it may even have more computational the, power. The only unmyelinated cells. The only reference that I know about failure of propagation of action potentials through, because of uh, ions is, but I think it's by Bell, in Oregon, I think. Um, so in, in in the cerebellum, they stimulate the parallel fibers, which are unmyelinated, and there are many of them, and they made this like in seventy one. And they measure extracellular potassium. And they show that the extracellular potassium increase, and uh, depending on how fast they uh, stimulated um, the fibers again, they will see a failure of the, of the volley of action potentials propagating, measuring um, field potentials. So, uh, but it's uh, in, instead of sodium, they were talking that it's like the change in, um, in the concentration of potassium. And it's outside mm-hmm. rather than inside. Yes. So yeah, it's a yeah, reverse story. Yeah. So let me ask a, a question in this mm-hmm. context so that if buildup of sodium is going to be a problem, you have to have a cell that's going to fire at a high rate, probably. So does anyone around the table know what uh, a physiological firing rate for an unmyelinated axon is in a vertebrate preparation? A lot less than a myelinated one. Well, most axons end up being unmyelinated in the last bit before they make synapses. So even even the corticospinal pathway, there's big pieces of that that are unmyelinated. And uh, even for the most heavily myelinated axons have an unmyelinated piece. But it is true that cells that tend to have unmyelinated axons fire slower than myelinated cells. You think about pain receptors um, axons, and you think about dopaminergic neurons. Apparently granule cells also fire uh, sporadically now. Granule cells. It seems, I I don't don't know all the cells in the brain, but of the examples... Well, oh, I'm pretty like, close. Who invited no, no. this guy? <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be every example that you can think of that tends to be the case. That's true. Hmm. So maybe this is a function of sodium or, or lack of sodium diffusion. So uh, mm-hmm. if I can just sort of help our listeners, perhaps they don't know a little bit of the context of this discussion, and that as I pointed out in some of our sodium imaging experiments, that... Sodium diffusion within an ac- within an axon near a node is so fast that we expect the sodium concentration to come back to rest 
in 10 to 20 milliseconds after an action potential. Uh, so this plays a very important role in uh, preventing uh, the change in driving force as the action potential propagates down a myelinated axon. But if this is the time scale, then you wouldn't really expect a problem until you get firing rates above 50 hertz. And that's why we were contrasting uh, myelinated against unmyelinated uh, axons. So even in dopamine cells, occasionally fire fast for a short period. For a short period of time. So I wonder if that has some effect on on their ability to fire action potential. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. But I was wondering what the effect would be at the actual terminals, at the release terminal. So if a cell fires at the soma at 50 hertz, and it's an unmyelinated axon, what is the actually, what is the frequency of release at the terminals? Actually, sodium buildup in terminals would be a really an interesting. Right. Thing. Yeah, that would be a, a cool experiment. Do you think about that, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> not until. Uh... <laughs> You smart guys put the idea in my head. It's a tough experiment. <laughs> you can do a tough experiment, like comics of hell, uh, go there and you can actually... So one it. would expect that a, a propagating action potential coming into the terminal region would certainly get to the end of the terminal, even if there were no active channels there, because the electrotonic distance is not that great. Uh, but you would expect some kind of decrement. So what we're now adding into the into the mix is even if there are active channels that the buildup of sodium could by changing the driving force of sodium have an effect on the decrement of the axe potential coming into the terminal and that this would be dynamic that successive action potentials in a train would be smaller I mean this of course might occur for many other reasons as well you know inactivation of one kind of channel or another but into this mix, we now add the buildup of sodium changing the driving force for sodium, which would, in and of itself, reduce the amplitude of the action potential right at the release site. Could also slow down the reuptake of transmitter hmm. uh, because the transporters are mostly driven by sodium. Yeah, right. Well, right. Many yeah. transporters would be effective. And how much, I'm sorry, how much do you think that? Uh, change of the driving force will actually taint um, someone's interpretation of whether an action potential fails or not is due to um, sodium channel inactivation, which would be thought of as a separate mechanism. Um, if you have a buildup of sodium and therefore the, the, um, the nurse potential is changed, and um, I would assume that the, the action potential shape will be different and um, it'll, the slope of the uh, rising phase of an action potential will be slower. Um, and it's going to look sh- like a change it's in gonna, sodium availability. It's going to look like a change in sodium availability, but it's going to look like sodium channel inactivation. Yeah, yeah I think this, everything you said is, is true. Uh, whether it actually leads to failure or not is probably something that's... You need a really probably a pretty big buildup of sodium before that occurs. But you'll certainly see uh, qualitative changes, even with smaller uh, changes in sodium concentration. Sounds like a job for the modelers in the group. Caged sodium. Caged sodium. Uh So I think um, I wanted to switch gears a little bit. Uh, I hope you don't mind us prying a little bit into your personal life. 
And I'll give Charlie the floor for this actually, but I just wanted to mention <laughs> that um, Charlie had uh, had described you and your wife Nehama Lassaros as one of the, I think you said one of the great neuroscience collaborative research couples, something like that. And so I was wondering if maybe you wanted to talk a little bit about that collaboration. Charlie might have. Might he, I think he. I was just thinking about how that got collaboration got started and uh, <laughs> and. and well, how it works. As a married person, as anybody knows who's works. been married, or even <laughs> if you haven't been married, the question of how it works is something that nobody really can answer. Uh, certainly not me. Uh, you need more than the mind of a novelist than the mind of a neuroscientist. Uh, so I'll give a superficial answer to that uh, question. So we actually uh, brought two different things to our work together. Uh, Nahama is a physical chemist by training. She has a PhD in physical chemistry from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And so she was very comfortable with uh, uh, all the sort of uh, dynamics of indicator dyes and fluorescence changes and these kind of things. So we, as we got into this, it was very easy to talk about it with her uh, just at home, uh, so I could, you know, bring my work home uh, to some extent. And then, for reasons which had more to do with uh, the dynamics of our children and uh, where we spend our time together and how we work, we we thought that we could actually work a lot of things out a little easier if we were both working in the same place. And uh, so we tried that and. Like any long-term relationship, uh, working or otherwise, it has had its ups and downs. And after a while, you develop a set of parameters and working relationships that try to keep things uh, going forward. But the, mostly, we each bring sort of different backgrounds and talents uh, to the work uh, together. Uh, and it's been uh, fairly fruitful, like you said. Well, thank you for being with us. Thanks, everyone, for showing up today. And uh, this was a great discussion. And look for us uh, next, uh, well, next week is Thanksgiving, so the week after, hopefully.